you might just be some guy that's trying to wholesale the property. And if you're trying to wholesale deals on the MLS, you're probably never going to get one. All right, welcome to the Deals Today podcast, and I'm your host, Paul DeCampo with realestateaudios.com, where we interview real-life, in-the-trenches guys and gals to show you what's actually working today, what is their, quote, secret sauce to making success in their life and in their business. And today we're going to be interviewing Todd Bayer. He's a local but quiet giant out here in Southern California. He runs the one of the biggest... REI clubs in Southern California. He's the guy that kind of pulls the strings in the background. And um, his partner may not like that comment, but <laughs> he runs the hard money lending company. He's done a flipping company. He now runs a, and he started and ran, runs a tiny home business. They foresaw a movement in the market here in Southern California, and they capitalized on it. And they created a tiny home company called Back Porch Homes, where they build for landlords mainly, but for anybody, tiny homes to put in your backyard and to capitalize on the cash flow opportunity there. So he's going to be talking about that actually, how if you're a landlord, you can capitalize on their product and create an extra stream of income from your existing properties. And he's going to go into a lot of things. He's going to touch base about his story, about how he got started, about his persistence and showing up every single day until he got a deal. It took him a while, but he showed up every single day to the auction. And interestingly enough, he's not a boots on the ground, knocking on doors, cold calling sellers. He's bought many, I want to say hundreds of properties, and he's only spoken to two sellers ever directly. And so his model is a little different, and he built his business to the what he likes, to, to his attributes and his lifestyle. So let's tune into that. And if, before you do that, please go to realestateaudios.com, where I have tons of information there. You can subscribe to my daily email newsletter where I give out tidbits and food for thought every single day to keep you going as a real estate investor. And don't forget to subscribe to the Deals Today podcast. All right, let's get to the interview. To go all the way back, I was going to school, you know, going to college. I had uh, done a study abroad program over in Oxford, England for a little while through the local community college here. And then I decided, like, when I got back, I was going to follow a girl and move out to the beach, you know, and uh, started going to school out that way. And, like, while I'm going there, and I'd always kind of felt this way because I had read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I've, like, always kind of studied, you know, being an entrepreneur. I've always had, a, like, a business of my own. Even in, like, elementary school, I used to sell candy out of my backpack. And, like, you know, going back to when I was 13, I started a computer business where I would build computers for people. So a lot of my friends' parents, I would sell them a computer, and you know, then I would go back and service that computer, and I did that until I was like 25. You know, I'm still kind of a computer nerd, but you know, I was going to school, I was still doing that business, so I was kind of paying my way doing that, and then I was like, you know what, I just want to get into the world and start doing something. You know, work to learn, right? That's what Robert Kiyosaki says. So in 2006, we were looking at, you know, my mom or her, her mom had passed away. And she was, you know, left with a little bit of inheritance. And she was like, I've always wanted to invest in real estate. So, you know, my dad would never let her do it. So she was like, I'm doing this. This is my money. This is my inheritance. I'm going to do with it what I want. So she decides, uh, let's let's invest in real estate. So I started looking into how to buy property, basically. And the quickest way I found, if you have cash, was to go to the public auction where you can just buy. It used to be at the courthouse steps right here in Riverside. So I was like, okay, just go to the trustee sale and start buying property. 
it was the easiest way to do it, it seemed, because they were every single day, they'd have an auction, you know, so just got to show up at 10 o'clock in the morning and there you go. So, yeah, basically every single day my day would be looking at the new list that was going to be uh, all the properties that were going to be going to auction the next day. I would go drive by all those houses, kind of write down an, a rough estimate of what I think the repair cost would be, and then come up with a final bid, which was basically a very simple formula of 75% of ARV minus rehab, and that was what my what my maximum bid price would be. And uh, yeah, was going every single day. I would go to the bank in the morning, take out cashier's checks, you know, so I'd have enough money to pay for the pro the the any deal I bought that day. And would go, and so I went every single day for six months before I was able to actually buy something because all the guys at the auction would bid the price up and up and up just to bid you out and get you out of the place because they didn't want you there. So, how many offers do you think you made before you bought your first deal in that six months? Every single day, I probably bid on at least five houses. You know, for six months, going five days a week or four days a week, or whatever it was at that time. I mean, you know, hundreds. <laughs> you know. Auctions, is that something you continued doing or you just transitioned to some other way to find deals? I continued doing that until I was able to actually get my first one. I, I kind of, one of the guys that had been going for a long time to the auction, I went up to him one day. I was like, hey, man, let me get one. I, that's all I want. I just want one deal. I'm not going to be here every day. I'm going to, once I buy it, I'm going to be off working on that property and then I'll come back maybe in six months and buy another one. But, you know, just let me get one. So, he was kind of like, all right, what are you looking at? You know, and so we, we kind of compare our lists together of what we're going to bid on that day. And I had a, a, a property that was I was actually going to be buying a second deed of trust. And he was like, you know, I don't really want that one. I have to bid on it. But he's like, I don't really want it. So he's like, let me make the opening bid. And then, you know, you can just make a bid a dollar more than that and get it. So <laughs> that's what happened. He made the opening bid. I bid a dollar more, whatever it was, and ended up getting that property that day. So after six months or after you know, a few months of doing this, you feel like giving up. You feel like, man, this is ridiculous. I'm never, these guys are all bidding me. I'm never going to buy a deal. And you just, you kind of just crawl to this guy kind of begging for some, a little leeway here. Yeah. I mean, cause I, what else was I going to do? You know? So that was the way to buy property. Ended up getting it, you know, the property, the people were still living in it, had to go and kick the people out, you know, not kick them out, but you know, negotiate with them terms on, on leaving. So offered him cash for keys, all stuff that I'd read about before, you know, and basically, yeah, said, you know, I'll give you 2,500 bucks to move out. And they agreed to do it. But, you know, they were actually a day late. So I took a hundred bucks off, you know, so I only gave them like $2,400 to move out. And uh, yeah, got started on the property, made a ton of mistakes and, you know, took six months to get rid of it. Finally closed escrow on the sale in January of 2007. Uh, so, you know, that was pretty much it. I wasn't able to get another deal. And then in April, we started seeing all the fallout coming from all the, uh, you know, mortgage meltdown. And uh, so I was kind of lucky in the sense that I wasn't good at finding deals prior to the crash. So I didn't lose anything. But uh, after the crash happened in December of 2007, I was getting all these emails for these upcoming REO auctions. So I was like, all right, maybe I should go check these out since, you know, I, I had tried going to the trustee sale, but there was like 500 new houses hitting the, the trustee sale every single day. And like 95% of those would get postponed. So like they weren't actually selling at the auction. So I was like, okay, this is a lot of research I'm doing and it's not fruitful at all. So, but then, you know, there was only like three people there bidding at that time because there was like everybody gotten wiped out. Right. So 
I was kind of trying that for a little bit and it wasn't really proving fruitful. So I got this auction thing for the REOs and I figured, okay, well, I'm just negotiating with the bank at this point. So maybe that'll be easier. Um, so I went to this bid, this auction in, in December of 2007. I remember a lot of the big players I knew about were, all, were there at that same time. Like Bruce Norris was there, you know, a couple other people that I knew were buyers at that time. And I'm in the front row and I'm like bidding on, I think I looked at like 200 and something houses in Moreno Valley alone beforehand and was up there in the front with Steven, my mom and myself all bidding on these houses. We ended up winning the bid on three of them. And uh, then we go in the back and you have to pay like a, uh, what they call it, some kind of a fee you had to pay because you, you know, it was basically the, the broker's commission. You had to pay their commission like up front. But these were all contingent. So I didn't I didn't know going into it, this was like a reserve auction. So they could not accept your bid and basically you don't get the property. So on two of them, that's what happened. They they didn't accept our bid and we didn't win it. So which was funny because those houses ended up selling for like half what I offered like a few months later. But they never came back to me, which was weird. You figure I was a buyer then at a hundred and something. Like why didn't they come back to me when they sold it for eighty? You know. So we you know we ended up buying one. It was a house across the street from Moreno Valley High School in Moreno Valley, and uh, I was on a third of an acre. We ended up rehabbing it, spending like twenty five thousand on a rehab, and then put a tenant in there and started buying rentals basically. So the plan was to sort of do the uh, the Burr method, which I didn't know that's what it was called. I actually didn't know that was what it was called until like eight months ago. <laughs> I just thought it was like you buy a house, you renovate it, you put a tenant in it, and you refinance, and then you do it again. You know, that's that's what I called it. But we ran into a wall. I didn't realize going into that method that there was a limitation on the number of mortgages you could have. Prior to the crash, it was 10. But once the crash happened, most banks limited it to four. So you can only have four mortgages at one time. And that kind of screwed up my plan. Is that still true today with the mortgage? Yeah, you can still do 10. And most banks will do 10. They extended it past the four that it was. But from what I know, you're not a landlord today. And you kind of, did you get rid of all those properties? Yeah, I did. Flash forward a little while, I had started doing a triplex that I bought for nothing because it kept falling out of escrow. And Stephen, being the genius he is, he told the people, the agents, that uh, we could close on this deal because it had fallen out of escrow like three times prior to. So we got an amazing deal because we told him we could actually close. And it was because we just knew how to bond around the existing city lien that was like basically a fix-it ticket. You know, you had to do all this work before you could sell the house. Well, it had like a huge hole in the roof. I mean, nobody's going to be fixing this place before they sell it. That's the reason why they're selling it. It's because they couldn't afford to fix it. So yeah, we closed on that one, started doing the deal. I originally got a loan through the Norris Group and my contractor, his bid just kept going up and up and up. And so I went to the Norris Group and tried to get my terms extended or something because I needed to borrow more money to finish out the rehab and they weren't going to do it. So I ended up having to find a private investor that had some money that knew some things about construction and I kind of got lucky. I, I called my corporate registered agent and I said, hey, do you know anybody with money that would lend in real estate? And he said, you know what, here, call this guy. He, you know, he has an office right by here. So I called that guy and said, you want to do this deal? And, you know, after talking to him for a little while, he finally said he would. So, you know, my experience with private investors was like, you just call one person and that's it. You get the deal, you know. <laughs> and so I ended up doing the deal and I closed it on that one. And then we refinanced it and kept it as a rental for a little while. But that dude that had finan that financed that deal, I'm like, hey, you know, maybe we should do some more deals together, kind of joint venture a little bit. So we bought a property together out in Baldwin Hill or Baldwin Park. 
and we did that one, but that one became a huge nightmare. It was like rat infested, and the the city shut us down. We ended up having to change our entire plan, but uh, got bigger and bigger. He kind of convinced me in 2011. He was like, "Hey, I just went to this like conference about becoming a hard money lender. You know, you ever thought about lending money instead of flipping?" And I'm like, "No, <laughs> I never thought about it. Don't really want to." And but he he was like, "Well, come to this thing with me because they were doing another seminar in Vegas and." So we went to this seminar like August of 2011 and yeah, I went to this seminar and I was like, okay, I mean, this sounds like, you know, an easy way to invest in real estate, I guess, you know, because if you got money, there's plenty of people out there that need money. And so easy enough, let's do it. So we put together, I put together a whole plan of how to run this company, how to, how to, you know, find the deals, uh, how to find all the investors and all this stuff. And you know, he had like $4 million of his own money that he was going to lend out. So we started the company and started lending. And pretty much within like a month and a half, I had all of his money lent out. Are you still doing that today? Hard money lending? So not with him. I uh, We had done it for a little while. And then it got to the point, like I said, where I was like, I'd lent so much of his money out that he didn't want to bring on additional capital. I, I was telling him, like, we should bring on some of your friends, some family, get some more money into this because I'm turning away all these loans. You know, I turned away like $13 million worth of loans over the course of like three months. So to me, I'm looking at like, okay, that's a lot of commission I'm not getting now, <laughs> you know, because he doesn't want to take on additional capital. So I'm like, all right, you know what? I'm going to start my own company. So I started Rehab Loan Group in 2013, July 2013. And basically my plan there was to just raise private capital. It was so easy finding him. I figured there's probably a thousand guys just like him you know, that want to lend private money. Wasn't as easy finding those guys. Initially, I figured I'd be the initial investor, so I'd sell all the rental properties. And uh, that's when I did. I started selling them all in, thir in 2013, finished selling them in 2014. And uh, that was supposed to be the initial capital to start lending out. Uh, turned out that just to be, that just ended up being the money to like start the company and like do advertising and bring some people on. And so, did that for a little while. Yeah, we were lending money and things were going pretty good. You know, we had a good program, but finding the investors was really, really hard because we tried to do a very aggressive loan program. There was high, high LTV, high interest, you know, but it was pretty much like anybody with no experience could borrow from us and we would sort of hold their hand through the process and, you know, help them do their deals. And things were basically going pretty good with that program. We had plenty of people that wanted to borrow. We just didn't have enough investors to invest. So it was getting really tight. We started the investment club around the same time in 2014. And so, you know, we had more investors kind of coming forward because, you know, we were more public, I guess. So more investors were coming in, but still not enough to really fill the demand. And then one day, Stephen and I were sitting in the office and we were like, you know, let's look at let's look at like what our maximum output could possibly be. If we were to do all these loans based upon the average loan size in the Inland Empire, you know, how much money could we actually make a year? And you know, we we're like, okay, looks like we're we're gonna make about 1.2 million. It's like the maximum we could really make working the amount of hours we wanted to work. So Stephen, between him himself and I, were kind of like, do we really want to work this hard for that much money? when we could just flip houses and we were looking at making like almost 10 times that amount. So, you know, for the same amount of effort, we're like, all right, let's start a flipping company instead. So we sort of put Rehab One Group on pause for a little bit, started Community Restoration Group and uh, started flipping and doing joint, joint ventures with people in the club. And that was going really, really well. 
until we <laughs> tried to hire somebody on to be a CEO and kind of slowed us down a little bit. Plus, we ended up suing a contractor, which really screwed us over because suing somebody costs a lot of money. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we basically had to stop flipping because it just wasn't making sense for us anymore. After that lawsuit, you know, we, we ran out of capital and we were just kind of like scraping to get by. And so that's when we started Back Porch Homes. And, uh, you know, Back Porch Homes is, of course, we're building the tiny homes. So far, that's going really good. But this coronavirus thing isn't helping at all because some of the we had uh, an investor that was going to put in the rest of the capital we needed to start the company and really get us going for the first couple of years. And just this week, he was telling us that until this coronavirus thing calms down, he's not going to be writing any checks. So, you know, that was our bad news we got this week. But, you know, he still really wants to do it. He's just kind of uncertain about what the market's going to do right now. I don't share his pessimism <laughs> at the moment. You know, I think that we're going to rebound back from this just fine, but you can't convince everybody. <laughs> so uh, with the recession coming about and well, it's not really, I mean, recession or not, I don't know, but the whole coronavirus thing, there's a lot of people that are kind of hesitant about buying right now. What's your advice for those people? Do you, you, do you tell them to stop buying? You tell them to keep doing what they're doing? I say keep doing what you're doing. You know, I think I think there's some good deals to be made right now. There's definitely people out there that need the cash because they might be a cash strap situation and they might have some equity in their home. So if, if they've got a, a house that needs a little bit of work, I think it's a good time to buy because I don't think housing is going to get really affected by this. I know there's talk of, you know, people not paying their mortgages. And if a, you know, like 25% of people, if they don't pay their mortgage, then it's going to completely collapse the, the entire mortgage system. But I really think the government's stepping in on this one to bail everybody out in the event of any kind of market downturn. Cause this is something new that we're all facing and they can afford to kind of pick up the tab a little bit on this one. So I think they will. And, you know, they're supposed to strike a deal today, I guess, but we'll find out how that all goes. And so is there any shifts you think that uh, operators should be making right now with, with this change? Well, it's tough because if you're a hard money lender, most of them have, have shut down because the secondary market isn't buying right now. Th that'll come back. But for right now, you know, we've actually kind of reopened the doors to Rehab Loan Group because, and we've had it going, you know, Ryan Raven's been running it for me for a little while now. He's been doing, you know, just our basic loan brokering, you know, and so right now we have some cash investors that, that have some very simple basic programs for flippers and, you know, they've come back saying like, hey, I'd love some deals right now. And so we're like, okay, you know, so we're one of the few hard money lenders that are currently operating and, you know, like I just before we got on the call, I was talking to Ryan because we have another deal he want that needs funding. So, you know, for anybody out there that's unsure, there's lots of guys that are still buying flips right now, especially right now. They've kind of ramped up a little bit because, you know, there's more opportunity all of a sudden. There's a lot of different reasons people have motivation to sell right now. So there's deals. I would definitely say go out there and look for them. Is there any fear of selling of finding buyers on the retail market? Since nobody's going out to see houses, I guess, supposedly. Well, if you're selling today, like right now, the open house thing on the MLS is shut down. So you can't post an MLS on the, I mean, an open house on the MLS. But, you know, that doesn't mean people aren't going to go show your property. If it's vacant, they should, they should have no fear of going to see a property. And some, some of the realtors I've been talking to, there's been plenty of demand for homes still right now. So no change in there. Okay. This was a question from an audience member. Any, any suggestions for finding buyers? Uh, the spring slash summer is the most active time for home sales on MLS, and this virus seems to be lasting a long time. Any suggestions to get buyers out of their house to see the houses? 
Well, if you're vacant, I think that's a good, you know, a good excuse. You might actually have a better chance of selling because your home is vacant. If you're trying to sell your home and you're living in it right now, definitely not. Don't be home during that time. You know, like if somebody wants to come by and see it, just say you won't be home. You know, give people uh, the little booty things to put on their feet or something when they walk through your home or, you know, just playing into the paranoia a little bit might help. I don't know. But there's there's quite a few people out there that are just sort of taking this whole thing in stride and they're not they're not buying into the pandemonium and the hysteria so much. So there's still plenty of people out there. And those are probably the people that are actively looking to buy a house right now. It's probably the people that aren't buying into the hysteria anyway. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of blown up on. I mean, I walk outside and everyone's just doing just fine going to Home Depot. And uh, so would you recommend people changing up their formula right now of, of buying, you know, the 70% rule, 75% rule, whatever it is, would you, how would you recommend somebody to change that up? If so, I'd probably add another like 30 days on just, you know, just out of an abundance of caution for myself. But, you know, I, I was just talking to Ryan earlier, Ryan Raven, cause we're also looking to buy a house right now. And I was telling him the same thing. I'm like, you know, I, I don't want to be tight with our numbers. Like, I want to make sure our numbers are pretty good. I don't want to do a deal where we're, you know, possibly just giving them a little bit, a little $500 or something like that. I don't want to do that right now. We're not giving any kind of extra concessions. We're just, let's stick to the straight math and, and go from there. Because if we start a project now, we're not going to get it on the market for at least another 45 days. And hopefully by then, you know, we'll have the uh, the stay-at-home order and all that stuff lifted. So by that time, we shouldn't have an issue selling. And it'll also be, you know, the end of the of the spring sa- of buying season, which will probably be more like the beginning of the spring buying season. So I think our timing's right to be buying right now because, you know, we're going to be selling it right at the right time. You're doing a lot of auctions in the beginning. Did you stop doing that, auctions? Yeah, I stopped uh, doing auctions because for me, it became more about boots on the ground. And there's a lot of people out there that are constantly looking for deals. I still, I don't think I'm very good at finding deals personally. I'm I'm not a good person to do that for you because I've never really done it. I've only spoken to a couple homeowners direct in my entire time of doing this. You know, I'm more better off working with like a realtor or a wholesaler and I let them do all the negotiations and they go find the deals and, you know, they bring them to me. I just have to let them know that I'm a buyer. <laughs> and so as long as I'm a buyer, they bring deals. That's how it's kind of been ever since, you know, I started buying really. I'd get plenty of stuff sent to me. Whether it was a deal or not was anybody's guess. <laughs> Do you think auctions are going to be something that will come back where it's it's a good place to buy again? It's always a good place to buy. You just you got to be really tight on your margins. You got to really know what you're doing. I would say to buy successfully at the public auctions. If you're talking about the private auctions where it's like, you know, they do the bidding on the lawn of the property or they do it at like a convention center or something like that. I've never known anybody to buy a deal at one of those. So, and I've met plenty of people that have bought properties at those auctions. I just never knew anybody that bought a deal that actually made money at one. So I don't think it's a great place to buy them. You definitely, I've never heard of anybody buying a deal online. And, that, and I've never heard of anybody even buying one online. So like, Oh, the online auctions that, okay, yeah. Yeah, like auction.com, formerly REDC. Yeah, like I've never heard of anybody actually buying stuff from those. And, you know, certainly not a deal. <laughs> so I don't recommend them. I still think the deals are out, out there. You got to get away from your computer. Hey, let me interrupt you to tell you about the free video you can get called 40 Ways to Find a Deal. It's a presentation done by a local expert out here in Southern California. 
His name is Steven. He's a flipper. He was a hard money lender. He's now building tiny homes for landlords. He's been immersed in the real estate business. And he gave a presentation a couple years ago on 40 plus ways to find deals out here, especially in Southern California, which is a competitive market. It's things he's done, things that his acquisitions team has done. And you can get that for free at realestateaudios.com slash flipping. Depending on when you're listening to this, you also get some free bonus PDFs that I give away, and you'll be subscribed to my daily email newsletter where I talk about some principles of marketing, business, real estate, mindset, everything in between. So head on over to realestateaudios.com slash flipping to get those. You guys today, well, you guys aren't really buying, but in the last year or two, it's mainly been realtors you guys been buying from? That's been your source of deals? Yeah, that and, you know, we have... We have a system for finding deals on the MLS, something Stephen and I, you know, Stephen more developed it over the years. You know, it's just it's just a way to kind of narrow down everything in the MLS to just a small list of houses that we can call on. And that's the method we've used. We actually, as one of the uh, prizes at the uh, Illinois Empire Real Estate Investment Club Christmas party, one of the prizes was Steve and I would work for the, the person that won for a day and we'd go out and the idea was to try and actually get them a deal in one day. So... We started the day off on the MLS where we, you know, put in all of our stuff, all of our parameters and narrowed it all down. I think we had about you know, 20 houses or so that we were going to go look at that day. Ended up looking at about, I think, six of them, six, maybe seven of them that we could actually get into that were vacant. And, you know, we wrote offers basically on all those and we didn't get any. But <laughs> the idea is that's what you do. I mean, every single day, if you just do that every single day, you're going to get a deal eventually. You know, the math kind of works out to be about one in a hundred. One in a hundred offers made? One in a hundred offers made, yeah. Now, everybody says, Todd, that uh, you can't find deals on MLS today. So you guys obviously have proven that wrong for the last, what, five years? Yeah, we've always found deals on the MLS. That's how we've always done it. I've actually never sent out a mailer. I've never done anything like that. There's people I know that have done mailers and I've bought deals from them. So that definitely works. But yeah, we've never actually done anything. I've never bought anything, you know, that wasn't brought from somebody else except for one time. One time I bought a deal directly from somebody. That's because they were a friend of mine getting a divorce. Then what are your um, tips for people dealing with realtors, dealing with making offers on the MLS? I'm sure people will come in here and say, I, I made offers on MLS. There's no deals there. I can't find them. There's no motivated sellers on the MLS. What do you say to that? It comes down to education. You know, Make sure your, your realtor understands and we don't write an offer on every single deal. If you write an offer on every deal, your your realtor is going to get extremely tired of doing that. The best way to do it is to really check the temperature of the seller with a phone call first. Call them and say, hey, you know, we want to make an offer. It's going to be a cash offer, you know, or hard money or something like that. And this is how much we're willing to offer. You know, is that something we should even bother writing an offer on? You know, and if they say no, then don't. <laughs> don't bother with it. It's a great way to save your time because writing offers takes a long time and takes a lot less time than it used to, but it's uh, still a pain in the butt to do. And uh, I say making verbal offers is the fastest way to to get to a yes because some agents will say like, you know what, yeah, write it. <laughs> you know, like I'm presenting to the to the agent next week, and if you get a name out there eventually, you know, the agent knows you're for real because they've seen your name a bunch of times. They're going to say, oh, Todd's writing this offer. This is coming from Stephen and Todd. Okay, yeah. Like I know they're real buyers. They're going to actually close because that becomes the concern for a lot of them is that, you know, you might just be some guy that's trying to wholesale the property 
And if you're trying to wholesale deals on the MLS, you're probably never going to get one. So how do you communicate that with a, I'm sure realtors get that all the time out here in Southern California. They get people coming in saying they're all cash buyers. You know, it's kind of like, yeah, sure, whatever, buddy. How do you communicate that you actually are, you're going to close on this deal? It's tough. I mean, you know, that's that's really the hard thing is convincing the seller that that you're going to actually be able to close. And, you know, if you're new, putting down a big EMD usually helps. So the bigger your earnest money deposit, the better. We always try to do a zero money EMD <laughs> because we don't like putting a bunch of money out. You figure if we have 10 deals locked up and we have $5,000 committed to 10 deals, that's 50 grand we got sitting out there, which is a lot of money not doing anything. So we always try to do zero money EMDs and just tell them, you know, look, we can send you the EMD, but we're going to take a we're going to take another day to close. If you want, we'll just close much faster if we just, you know, do our inspection and then we'll just wire you the money. I mean, it's that simple. But uh, obviously, we have that luxury. We've got a lot of investors that have worked with us for years and are confident that we know what we're doing. So it's uh, when you're new, a lot harder to convince somebody that you can actually close working with a, you know, a known hard money lender because hard money lenders aren't going to do a deal that doesn't make sense. So if you're working with a good hard money lender, that helps, you know, for a new buyer and that hard money lender hopefully gives you a, a proof of funds or some kind of a funding letter that says they can actually close for you. The more clout that that lender has, the better, especially if that agent's familiar with them. I think that's important. That's why we we focus a lot of our time working with realtors. That's why Ryan, he's out at real estate agent offices all the time, you know, getting to know the agents out there because if they know they've heard of us, <laughs> then it looks better when an offer comes through with our name on it. And in a crowded market, do you think would you recommend a brand new guy searching the MLS looking for deals, making offers to go about that proposition that you do zero interest money deposit and maybe offer a little more incentive for the realtor to go with them? No, I'd, I'd put down a much bigger EMD, and if they're confident they can close, I mean, I would never do it myself, but if you're confident you're going to close on this deal, I would say it's a non-refundable EMD because that would make the seller super confident. You got a $10,000 EMD sitting there, and if you don't close, they get to keep the ten grand, no questions asked. I mean, that's pretty strong. You know, I might be willing to accept a, a higher offer, I mean, a lower offer because somebody's that committed to doing the deal. Because worst case scenario is I lose a couple weeks and I get ten grand if they don't close on it. So that's really one way to do it. Shortening your your duration of time that you're going to close. So you know if people are writing a thirty or forty five day you know closing, narrowing that down to like a ten day or a five day even better. And then your lender will probably hate you if you if you're trying to do a loan in five days. That you know you probably really won't get it done. But <laughs> writing those down and then taking out all your like requests, you know, like you don't care about getting a termite report from the seller. You don't care about doing a home inspection, you know, like 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 from a home inspector. You're going to do your own, have your contractor go. Just narrowing down your your things you're asking them to do. Like you don't need a home warranty. Uh, you know, there's there's a bunch of things that you don't really need. So waiving as many of your contingencies as possible is going to be good. Has finding private money ever been a concern for you? Yeah, it's always a concern. But if you have a good deal, there's plenty of people, even at the Inland Empire Real Estate Investment Club, that'll fund that deal. You know, we've worked with people there almost exclusively for the last five years, you know, like where we've done deals with almost exclusively people from the club. You know, there are some inve- investors we have that are out of the area, but we met them at another club somewhere, you know, whether it be at, in Pasadena or one of the LA ones or one of the Orange County ones, you know, or even we have an investor that's out of the Coachella one. So they're everywhere, but uh, they come to our meeting too. A brand new guy 
coming in, looking for deals on the MLS, talking with realtors. He doesn't have a source of private money because he's brand new. So how does he go about having the confidence to say, yeah, I'll close on this. I'm an all-cash buyer when he doesn't have the proof yet? If he doesn't have cash, then he's not an all-cash buyer. So, you know, he needs to... uh... He needs to be honest. I think that's a big one too. You know, people are trying to, you know, sort of fake it till they make it a little bit. And I think it's important to be honest and tell the agent what they can actually expect. So if you tell them, hey, look, I'm new, this will be my first deal that I'm buying. I'm willing to put ten thousand dollars down as a non-refundable EMD, like if I don't close, like, you know, you're really coming off as a strong potential buyer there. And if you say, you know, also I'm working with, you know, Rehab Loan Group, you know, to close the deal or something like that, and you get a letter from us that says we've looked at the deal on 123 Main Street, you know, we're prepared to fund this amount. I mean, if you can make it, you can make your offer look a lot stronger. And, you know, and if you also want a joint venture with somebody who might have some more experience in the space, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm doing a joint venture right now. I have a deal with somebody going out in Fallbrook. So, I mean, I'm still willing to do it to some degree. It's just got to be a good deal. <laughs> uh, and, you know, if the numbers make sense, most flippers I already know, they'll do the deal with you. And they might even be able to bring their funding source. They might even be able to bring their clout a little bit with you because new people get the worst financing, you know, and the people with experience get the best financing. So, like, right now I could probably borrow better than anybody I know. Well, not better than anybody I know, but borrow <laughs> better than any new person could for sure. And what about tips for finding good contractors then when you're starting out? How do you do that? I mean, I'm sure contractors, I mean, I have, contractors for me have always been a headache. So how do you deal with it? Contractors are tough. You know, that's always one of the hard things. And right now it's even harder because some of them are concerned about actually going to work. Some of their wives won't let them go out and work right now because they don't want them going out and getting the coronavirus and bringing it home. <laughs> so we've had, because we still have some projects going too. And uh, our main contractor, he's got a few guys that their wives won't let them out of the house right now. So things have slowed down a little bit. But finding a good contractor is hard. They're out there. They exist. The key, I think, with a contractor is to take them at their word, but fire quickly. You know, if like you go and, and you should, you got to pay attention to a new contractor very closely. So go out there day one. And if anything seems off, you kind of give them like one re- one warning. And then if you see like one more thing, you just say, look, I don't think it's going to work out. You got to go, you know, pay them for the day and then move on. Because if you go too far down the road with a bad contractor, you're just going to regret it <laughs> the entire time. I've been down that path. It sucks. So hire quickly and fire quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Going back to the the deal finding, do you think that it, things are going to shift right now? As far as MLS goes, do you think there's going to be more opportunity in the MLS than there was maybe a year ago? How do you think people are going to be finding deals? There's going to be a lot of opportunity in the next two years. A bubble is going to burst. Prices are going to drop. I don't think it's going to change. I think I think the next, you know, at least the next year, I think it's going to be fine. I think two, I think 2020 is going to be a good year for real estate. You know, and this whole this whole virus thing might even push it into being 2021 is a good year for real estate. It's anybody's guess, really, but and I don't have a crystal ball, just like nobody else does. But you know, nothing in the economy was scary to me prior to this virus outbreak, so I'm not really too concerned. It's like markets tend to crash when things are going really, really crazy. You know, it's like how the stock market crashed just recently because it was already pretty pumped up in value. There was already probably a stock market bubble as it was, and then this thing broke out, and it's just that's the you know that was everybody's excuse to pull out. You know, like. Like the end of the world's coming, but you know what are we looking at today? The market's kind of rebounded a little bit, and after it hit 
almost at 18,000 yesterday, the Dow Jones. I mean, it's back up today. So it's kind of tough to call that market. But real estate, we're slow and steady. Things are affordable. And with mortgage rates kind of going down right now anyway, that just brings back more buying power. So I think we've extended it a little bit longer until the Fed decides to raise rates again. So wasn't that why you guys shifted to tiny homes as well? One of the reasons why. I mean, you mentioned it was uh, you kind of shut the doors on that 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 business, but wasn't it also because there was kind of a height in the real estate market right now. We kind of took the Seinfeld approach. We wanted to kind of get out while the getting was good, you know. Plus, we we're struggling. We had after that lawsuit, we we're struggling. We've had four deals that our investors are losing money on. It's not good. It's not comfortable for us. I mean, you know, they kind of came to us thinking that we're the security, we're the we're the safety. Were the guys that were gonna, you know, see these deals through and they were gonna make money? They probably felt it was guaranteed, but you know, the reality is we're not infallible. Things can happen. That lawsuit was a bad decision. We probably shouldn't have sued the person because we ended up settling and ended up losing a ton of money. So the investors, unfortunately, are taking part of the hit on that, and that sucks for them. It sucks for us. We've had a horrible time dealing with it, but doesn't mean that we don't know what we're doing. It's just you know we're not we're not litigators apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so, did you guys lose that uh, settlement, or uh, did you guys? Oh, you guys settled. So yeah, basically- we settled. We would have won. We had it in the bag. I mean, we would have won. We just didn't have the money to continue paying the attorney, and our attorney wasn't going to do it on contingency. So before you enter into a lawsuit, make sure you find an attorney that will do it. You don't have to pay. You know, make sure they believe in the case that much that they're actually going to put their own money behind their mouth. Because you know, our attorney, while we like the people. We feel like we got had a little bit, you know, and they, they kind of took us for a ride because, you know, we told them in the beginning we didn't have the money to do this. And they still kind of let us go down that path. So, you know, we, we got taken by an attorney. I, and I'll, I'll admit that it's, you know, it's our fault that we let them kind of sell us. But, you know, we felt we had a really strong case and we did. But the other guy just had more money than we did to sustain it longer. So, <laughs> you know, he was a contractor you're suing. Yeah, contractor, well-known guy. A lot of people know him. He's out in the Orange County area, very active out in that area through the clubs and stuff like that. So if anybody ever wants to deal with a contractor out in the Orange County area, call me or Steven first and ask us if he's a contractor we recommend or not. (laughs) Was that a case of using a bad contractor repeatedly? You gave that tip earlier, just keep away from those bad contractors, just fire them. Was this a case of it? How do you keep away from that situation? There was a lot more to that deal, and the reason why we sued him had, well, it, it, it all kind of tied together. He was a lender and a contractor, so he put in money on that deal also. And really, it came down to the fact that he just stopped as a contractor doing what he was supposed to do because he as a lender stood to make more money by extending out the term of the loan, which we fa- came to find out is called tortious interference of a contract, where he as the contractor was going to make more money as a lender because he could make the project go along. You know, and then he decided to foreclose on us <laughs> because, you know, that would make him make even more money. So, you know, ultimately it was fraud. What do they call it? A breach of contract, tortious interference of a contract. We had him on so many different counts. We had evidence. We had all kinds of stuff. And we could have nailed him. We probably could have turned the case over to the DA and he probably could have gone to jail. In fact, I'm like 90 percent certain he would have gone to jail for fraud. But we didn't know that going into it. We kind of had this like belief like, you know. We're these club leaders. We 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 got to fight for like for the everyman out there. Like we should you know take this guy down and never file a lawsuit on principle. You know, file it because it actually makes financial sense. And this one didn't make financial sense. 
basically stay away from any contractors that are also your lender then, right? Yeah, or if you do, put them behind you. Like, file a lien ahead of them. Like, our mistake was that we had a third on that deal, and he was a first and second. We should have had him as a first and third, not a first and second. If he was a third, this probably wouldn't have gone down so smoothly for him because he wouldn't have had the incentive to do what he did. With uh, tiny homes... Now, you know, there's a couple questions for the for the tiny homes since you guys are has have you guys rolled that out now? It's middle of March, actually end of March 2020. Have you guys rolled that product out yet? Yeah, we have uh, our our companion, the uh, studio model is done. We have plans, we're accepting orders right now. We just did a big show at the beginning of the month down in Del Mar at a show called Tiny Fest. We have another big show coming up in June called the Great American Tiny House Show or something like that. Uh, of course, everybody's going to hear all about it pretty soon. We just got signed up with them to do that show. We have the model. We're ready to go. We're basically just waiting for our first 20 orders to come in, and then we're going to push it out. You know, How many orders do you guys have so far? We have seven. Waiting on another 13, and once we have those, the factory's ready to start making them. They've told us yesterday, actually. They said, please, because they're shut down right now. <laughs> they're shut down because of the virus, and they're an RV manufacturer, and there's no RV building going on right now. Are you guys shipping out across country to just California? We can. We can go anywhere in the country, but we're primarily sticking to Southern California for right now just because there's a huge enough demand here. And unless you really want to pay the extra delivery cost, it's about $1.55 a mile You know, if you want to go anywhere. So if we wanted to go to Texas or Utah or whatever, <laughs> you know, just figure $1.55 a mile for your transportation cost. Is that becoming a crowded market for you guys? Are there a lot of tiny home manufacturers right now in the country? No, it's uh, it's extremely open. You know, if anybody wanted to become a tiny home builder, now is the time to do it because we still need another hundred or two hundred tiny home builders in this country to even make a dent in the in the affordable housing market as a um, you know for tiny homes because we see it as a very possible option for people to put in their backyard as an extra unit to help solve you know the affordability issue. And explain how that works. Who's your end buyer and, and how does it work for them? Most of the buyers are going to be people that own a home and have the space in their yard to put a unit and they're going to either rent it out to an adult child, a parent of theirs, or like a college student or a single mother or something like that. You know, They're looking at it as either additional square footage that they can add to their property or they're looking at it as an additional source of income to help them pay their mortgage. In some people's cases, they'll buy the unit and they'll move into the tiny home and then rent their main home out because they don't need all that space anymore. So we've actually met quite a few people that that was their plan when we were down at the Del Mar show. We were very surprised to find out that most of the people didn't want it for extra square footage. We were actually surprised how many people are really looking at it as an additional source of income. So definitely it's a good investment for a landlord with a big lot, has extra space in the back. Is that some of the, some of the guys you're talking to, some of the people you're talking to and, and potential buyers? Yeah, actually most of the buyers I would say are real estate investors in some capacity. They're the people that they see it because you know you can put this thing in your backyard and if you're here in like Riverside, for example, you could easily get $1,000 a month for that unit. And you figure with financing, they're paying less than $400 a month for it. I mean, they're cash flowing probably more than they would cash flow on the main home. <laughs> so if they already have a rental property and it has the space for an additional unit, you have this rental and you put this thing back there, you've probably doubled your yield on that property. This is a question from an audience. Who are the top three tiny home manufacturers and designers right now in the country? Are you guys one of them? 
well, as far as like usability and like how good the units are, we're number one. I mean, that's that goes without saying. But you know, <laughs> now the uh, the big ones are going to be like tumbleweed. Tumbleweed's probably the biggest one. They're out of Colorado. They build, you know, they're probably building about fifty to hundred units a year, maybe as many as two hundred. But they've been around a long time. They're very set in their ways. They do customs, you know, which is not something we're doing. We're not going down the custom road. We're we're building them like the Ford Model T. You know, it's like we'll get you a usable house, and then if you want to do any customizations, you can do that on your own. There's a couple other builders out there, and most of them focus on on customizations. There's nobody really doing our model, which is sort of a like I said, Model T. Nobody's really going that route. They all they all kind of have like 28 different floor plans, and you can do all these different customizations and different configurations of those 28 floor plans. So they're building kind of one-offs, and that's who we met at the uh, at the tiny home show in Del Mar. You know, there wasn't anybody that was doing them as a as a factory thing, except for some of the modular or mobile home builders. But they're not building tiny homes; they're building park models. And really just mobile homes. They're just building mobile homes and they're calling them tiny homes. <laughs> so, And the advantage of doing like the Model T for you guys, is it drive down costs? Yeah, it drives down the costs so we can keep the cost low. We hardly found any seller that was selling their unit for under a hundred grand. You know, and here we are priced at sixty thousand, you know, and it's built like a brick house. I mean it's built like a like a home. Everything in it is residential grade. It's built like you would build a regular house, so it's it's durable. It's built to a 60-year construction standard, so you know these things are built to last. And when you look at like the mobile home builder ones, I mean they're still doing the typical tricks that they do on mobile homes. You know they're doing they're not doing two by fours. They're doing you know one by threes. You know they're spacing the gaps out a little bit further, and they're using cheaper materials. It's kind of the same old story with them. So. If they last 30 years, great. But, you know, we're building ours to international building codes. So we're compliant in all 50 states as far as our construction code goes. Are those other, um, like Tumbleweed, I've, I've heard of those guys. When I was in the land business, I was looking into those guys. But I would imagine they're not for the investor like you, you're focusing on, right? Are most of them just because it's all customization, right? That's too expensive for an investor. Are you guys one of the only ones that are focused on the landlord? I think we are. I think we're probably the only one, at least that I know about. I've, you know, there's supposedly a company in LA, but I don't even know their name. And again, we could take another 200 companies building tiny homes designed for investors. And, you know, there still wouldn't be a crowded marketplace. This is a huge industry that's currently wide open for business. (laughs) So, and the idea of affordable housing here in California and really on any coastal state, I mean, it's huge. You know, that's, like there's nowhere you can go buy a $60,000 home that has everything you need, you know, and you can still put it in a really decent part of town. If you go to rent like a really cheap apartment, you know, you're looking for something that's like $800 a month here in Riverside, that's going to get you very limited options and you're probably going to be in a pretty rough neighborhood. So, you know, if you can rent this thing for a thousand a month and be like near the college or, you know, be in Canyon Crest or somewhere like one of the better areas in town, you know, I think people would much rather have that as an option. What's the initial investment that in a, a landlord would have to make to buy one of these? With us, you know, you got to put a $500 deposit down. That just shows to us that you're a real buyer. And that puts you in line, which is important because down the road, we're going to have a huge line of people that want to buy these things. So the quicker you get in line, the better because the sooner you're going to get a unit. It only takes us about six weeks to build one. We're going to get that down to about a one-week period pretty soon. Because uh, once we can really spool up the factory and get a bunch of workers working on it, we can build these things really quickly. So getting in line is important. So it's 500 bucks. Then you buy the, you know, the, the unit itself costs 60000 
And then uh, the cost to get it basically installed is the only other cost aside from tax and title, which you have to pay to the state. The delivery cost and the installation is going to be somewhere around 3500 to 5000 depending on the, the property that you're putting it on. Not every property has a wide enough side yard for us to be able to back it in, so we'd have to bring a crane out. That costs like two grand. So costs vary, and then it depends on how far we have to run utilities to get from the uh, existing meters to the unit itself. So that's about it. You guys have a, an amazing, unique selling proposition, right? Nobody, There's nobody targeting landlords for this, and there's tons of landlords, especially out here in California. A lot of guys who are building a second structure or something in the back – you know, to add on the value, add on the income. And and tiny homes, I imagine, would be cheaper to go that route, right? Absolutely, yeah, and faster too. You know, you figure to get an ADU permit to add on to an existing structure, you're looking at probably right now at least nine months before you're going to be anywhere close to done at least, you know, and probably even closer to like 18 months before you're finished with your ADU build. But with us, you know, we go and fill out. It's an over-the-counter permit to get an RV stand, and, you know, we go and do our semi-permanent foundation system, keeps it a trailer, but it's just on a semi-permanent. We drop the axles off or take the axles off, drop the unit down. And, you know, you got a one foot or, you know, one and a half foot step to get into the property, to get into the, the unit itself. You know, we're probably installing in three weeks and you're done, you know, so you have an extra unit way faster and probably way cheaper too. an ADU build right now. I mean, you're still looking at paying probably upwards of $200 a square foot in most places to build it, you know, whereas with ours, it's cheaper. It's not as big, you know, but that's, uh, if you've seen our unit, you're going to kind of go in and say, you know, what do I really need all the extra space for? Do I really need hallways? And do I really need, you know, all the extra space that's eaten up in square footage of a home? Todd, I uh, appreciate being on the show, man. You gave a, a lot of wise uh, words here for flippers and landlords, dude. I appreciate it. And guys getting started too. So I really appreciate you being on here, man. Is uh, How can people find you? You can go to backporchhomes.com. Look us up there. You can go to ierec.org. Find us there. You can go to meetup.com. Look up the Inland Empire Real Estate Investment Club. You can go to rehabloangroup.com, you know, or you can give us a call. Our phone number for Back Porch Homes is 951-394-1844. You can write me, Todd, at backporchhomes.com. All right. Awesome, Todd. Thank you very much. All right. That's a wrap. And I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please go ahead and subscribe to it on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or whatever you use. It really helps me keep producing these. Just search for the Deals Today podcast in your podcast directory, podcast app. So if you're not on my daily email newsletter and you want to be and you want to receive the free 40 Days to Find a Deal seminar, go ahead and go to realestateaudios.com slash flipping. Again, that's realestateaudios.com slash flipping.